Hi everyone, welcome back to the second part of our episode on Mahler's third symphony. I'm coming to tonight, I have to apologize. I say tonight because I'm recording this very late. We're at uh, almost 11 p.m. now, so this may not go up technically until more like 12.30, 1 a.m. tomorrow, but I hope you'll forgive me for slightly reneging on this promise of of 10 Mahler symphonies in 10 days, but we'll we'll try to stay pretty much on schedule. Um, yeah, and so we're gonna dive right in and continue where we left off with the second movement of this third symphony. I guess I should also mention, we're all about fun here at Attention to Detail, and so if you're playing along at home and would like to join me in this adventure, I will be for the first time ever, I probably shouldn't broadcast this, but I'm gonna be uh, recording with a nice end of the day Corona Light, the official beer of this apocalypse. So play along if you want to join at home and, and pick up a 99 calorie Corona Light for yourself as well to listen to this fantastic music all the better. So our first stop is the movement, the second movement, which is entitled What the Flowers in the Meadow Tell Me. And if you'll remember from our previous episode where we review the first movement of this piece, we're in this kind of cosmological world of Nietzsche, Lippiner, the poet, Mahler, and here, starting with the second movement, we've set the scene in the first movement, and now we're going to begin to ascend this sort of ladder of tiers of enlightenment or the hierarchy of the cosmological world, whatever, however you want to think about it. So in this movement, we're, we're at the bottom. Um, what the flowers tell me. Not that flowers are not fantastic living beings, but there, here's a quote about from Mahler about this movement. He says, It's the most carefree music I have ever written, as carefree as only flowers can be. And so the idea is, I've mentioned it already in a couple of these, that whenever Mahler writes music that sounds somewhat trivial or uh, purely entertaining, there's, there's usually a purpose behind that. It's not just because he's writing trivial music because he's a cheap or kitsch composer. There's something very profound in that. And so this movement is really about setting the stage of while flowers in the meadow are nice, this is kind of in one way the lowest level of this enlightenment hierarchy. Not to say that there can't, we, we can't learn something from the flowers in the meadow, but as you learn listening to this movement, I think it's, it's not as profound as some of the things to come. So this is one of the scherzo movements, like the second symphony. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. It unfolds in what we would expect a, a pretty standard scherzo to unfold in this kind of A-B-A-B-A form that's, that's pretty standard for a movement like this. So let's hear the A and the B sections quickly just to get a little sense of, of the character of this movement, but we've got some big stuff coming up so we won't spend much time on this. So, delightful music, I think we could probably agree, though, a little bit on the basic and elementary side for what we might expect from Mahler. Again, that's 100% intentional, that's meant to be some of the, he said it's the most carefree music he wrote. Here's a little bit of the trio. Again, we get a little bit of that sense, as I mentioned in previous episodes, Mahler often takes us through these meanderings through the, the dark forest and the trio section of this this second movement sounds a little bit like one of those moments. 
So this movement has a lot of fantastic music. It's I shouldn't sell it short. I, I encourage you to go listen to it, and there's a lot of musical detail. But as I mentioned, it's it's kind of the lowest on our totem pole here of of hierarchy of of enlightenment or self uh, realization. And so we will we will jump ahead to the massive massive third movement. What the animals tell me. The animals tell me. And this movement, as it, as it suggests, is, is about the, the animal kingdom, the animal we've moved on from, from uh, plants to animals now. Mahler said about this movement, uh, the scherzo, the animal piece, is the most ludicrous and at the same time the most tragic movement. And so it's interesting, again, in this movement, we're going to get that quintessential Mahler irony. We're left to kind of interpret why that irony is there in the context of this particular program, but it's something to keep in mind as he kind of potentially pokes fun at the banality of a lot of animal life to show that this is in some way not one of the high stages of enlightenment before we've We've turned a corner that's going to come in the next movement. But there's tons of music to break down in this particular movement, a fantastic movement, starting with um, a folk song that, or, or a song that Mahler wrote himself called Ablosung im Sommer. It's a poem about a cuckoo and a nightingale, these two birds, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a poem about nature, essentially. The poem in this case is not particularly important, I don't think, other than it's, it's a poem about two animals. But I want to play for you a little bit of this song by Mahler so you can hear the melody as he took this and made it into his third movement of the, the Third Symphony. So now listen to the opening of this third movement. It's you'll notice that it's not even just similar, it's exactly the same music. You hear at the end of that clip, actually, some music that almost sounds to me like music if you remember back to the third movement, the scherzo movement of the second symphony, the movement about St. Anthony of Padua and the fishes, where he preaches to these fishes who are senseless and, and just follow every word that he says. A little bit of that similar style of music here, this this almost overly saccharine music to, to seem that seemingly represents the kind of uh, lack of of intellect that exists in animals when compared to to mankind. So then we we move to some more music at, at the beginning of this third movement, which has a very free sort of form. We begin with what seems like a scherzo form. It's supposed to be another scherzo movement, and we get kind of an another A B A B A, much like the second movement. And so I'll play you a little bit of the B music as well, which is this kind of rustic pastoral music, very different from the the kind of natural animal sounding music of of the opening.
So we hear more of this music, A-B-A-B-A, the, the natural sounding music, animal sounding music comes back. We hear the rustic music again. And then we come to a long, one of the most magical, long passages in all of Mahler. It's known as the, the post-horn interlude or episode, but this, this passage played on something called a post-horn, which is this kind of small French horn-like instrument used for mountain calls, really reminiscent of an alpine type of scene. It's an incredible instrument and it's an incredible scene. And I want to play for you a little bit of the beginning of this post-horn episode when the all of the action stops and we hear this post-horn play from offstage from a great distance. And then we'll talk a little bit about what what this might be doing there and what, what it may all mean existing in the middle of this, what seems to be a up-tempo scherzo movement. So we're left wondering what this this interlude is is doing here, and Mahler gave us a little bit of a clue in one of the programs in the first performances of one of these symphonies. He says that the quiet, undisturbed life of the forest before the appearance of man, that's what this is depicted, but then the animals catch sight of the first human being. And so for a moment there's this sense of complete wonderment on the on the face of the animals in the animals of what is this what is this being and i think that may shed a little bit of light on what this episode means for me to try to capture it in words i think would not do it justice let me play for you this is a very long stretch of music that has some orchestral interludes in the middle and the post horn then continues to play let me play you one of those short ones that's that's some of the most beautiful music I think Mahler wrote, one of my favorite moments. And, uh, and then we'll hear what comes after this as well, which is very, very interesting music in and of itself. So Mahler also says in this program from one of the first performances, he says, Although the human walks calmly past them, the terrified animals sense that future trouble will come from him. And so there's this sense of impending doom that, that mankind may bring upon the world of animals or something like that, nothing more fitting. Uh, I think that's, you know... <laughs> It's a good allegory for climate change a hundred years before before we actually were were facing that. But um, let's hear the moment when which which Mahler actually marks in the score, saying, uh, "With mysterious haste." This comes right after the post horn episode, and we can hear those shivering animals realizing in in fear what this appearance potentially of of this of mankind or of this single human might actually mean for for them
So the animals seem to shiver. Then we get this passage that seems to harken a little bit back to the first movement. If you remember from the first movement, there was all this rabble, ruckus, a parade seeming of, seemingly of animals. And we get this passage marked grob in the score by Mahler, which means crude. And so this is supposed to be played very crudely, but it's like, again, this kind of uh, bombastic parade of, of animal life unclear exactly what it's doing here in the narrative of of the story but there's not necessarily a clear story to this movement it's a picture of of animal life and the lessons that we can potentially learn from that so here's a little bit of that that crude grub music So shortly after this, we come to the next. There are two post-horn interludes, the first one much longer than this second one. But leading up to the second one, we've, we've heard the animals kind of come away from this first vision, breakthrough moment, whatever you want to call it, scared, shivering. And now we hear, leading up to this second post-horn movement, the animals seem to be panicked again as, as they can sense maybe mankind or another man is going to, to enter the scene. Also, I should say this is, of course, there's a lot of, as we will see in the next movement as well, what mankind t tells me, oh, oh man is some of the texts. There's a lot of uh, patriarchal uh, residue that's on this piece. So when we talk about mankind, we of course mean mean everybody. Um, but we, the animals get really terrified before the, this human walks on the scene and we get the second post-horn interlude and let's hear a little bit of that passage, it's very vivid. So when we come to the end of this second post-horn interlude, we get this fantastic finish, but I should point our attention to one thing. We heard a lot of bird calls there that sound something like... Which is, that's the intervals that we're hearing there. We hear... several times. And... Just keep that in your mind as you listen to this last passage. I'll, I'll play it for you to the end because the ending of this movement is so great, but right before the ending, we get another one of these clear breakthrough moments. And I think it harkens back to that breakthrough if you remember from the first movement. It sounds very similar with a big harp and explosion and the whole orchestra plays this minor chord. But listen also for that 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 call of the animals that we've been hearing this whole time. See if you can see where Mahler buries that into this breakthrough moment.
Man, super fun ending to the movement. Did you, I, I hope we caught that breakthrough moment, the moment with, again, where it sounds like a cataclysm. Um, and we hear this horn call, we hear. And then goes on. We don't need to worry about that, but same exact, this figure, if we just played it. It's the same bird call, whatever call, cuckoo call that we've been hearing since the beginning of the movement transformed into this massive breakthrough-esque moment that's reminiscent of the first movement's breakthrough and one that we will, I promise, get to shortly. So then we come to the crux of this piece, the fourth movement, what mankind tells me. Again, I apologize for the patriarchal residue on these titles but we'll persevere nonetheless. Um, this movement, What Mankind Tells Me, is, is the moment where everything switches in, in the symphony. We go from states of what we might consider unenlightenment to states of enlightenment. And this is the first movement that uses a singer in this piece. It uses an alto, and the text that's set is the Midnight Song from Nietzsche's Also Sprach Zarathustra. So here we get an actual textual reference quotation of Nietzsche to confirm this idea that this is a kind of Nietzschean piece. And there are, in this poem, this Midnight Song, which is uh, delivered twice in the course of Zarathustra, and it's one of the most important moments in the book, there are all these themes of night and day, this idea, the Nietzschean idea of eternal recurrence, decay and the afterlife, a kind of eternal life. And so we're going to get a musical depiction of that poem. But importantly, there's this idea that min, man or mankind is awakening from a sleep. That's why this takes place at midnight and somehow awakening from darkness, man has largely been in darkness and needs to find the light or something like that. that the light being, we can assume, some sort of enlightenment, what will come in the next few movements. So let's hear a passage from the beginning of this movement where the singer sings, O Mensch, lamenting the, the earthly pains and and shackles of, of mankind. So a lot of the music from this movement is what we might consider night music called Nachtmusik. Um, it's dark, it's brooding. Mahler was an expert in writing night music. We'll, we'll get into that, especially when we get to the Seventh Symphony much later. But romantics in general, German romantics, had this fascination with night and with darkness versus light. Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, one of the central themes is is night and darkness versus the transfiguring quality of light. And that's certainly what we get in this movement as well. And we get three moments in a primarily minor and dark movement. We get three moments of light that eventually correspond with moments in the text that are very important. So I'll play for you the first one and then I'll uh, give you the text of that passage and we'll, we'll examine a little bit of, of the music that follows as well.
So the singer there sings, we hear this kind of uplifting melody for a moment, major. She sings, from a deep dream I have awoke. And so there's this idea that we've awoken from our, potentially our slumber of lack of enlightenment or something like that, and awoke in some sort of enlightened manner now. But then the singer importantly sings, the world is deep, and we hear this passage. That's what we hear, which, if we add just a note, that goes from major to the pessimism of, of minor. And this is important. We slip back into the real world music, the dark music. But then we get some more allusions to lightness, to enlightenment. Let's listen to the next one. This one is primarily an instrumental allusion. And importantly, we get an interesting key here that I'll show you after we, after we listen to this passage. So there we hear some important music. One important thing about it is it's in the key of D major. Again, these key relations, I don't need us to remember anything much about them other than that that music is in D major, which will be important, but also we hear this we hear this theme. I want you to keep that in your ear because I'll play one more passage for you. This is towards the end of the music where the singer sings, the, the line that comes right before is, pain says pass away, but all joy seeks eternity, seeks deep, deep eternity. So we, we get this word joy and we get the idea of eternity, somehow joy seeks eternity. A lot of the text of this poem is the world is deep, deep is its pain, deeper still than heartache. Pain says pass away, but all joy seeks eternity. So there's, there, it's a turning point in the poem, and I'll play for you that, that passage in the music here. So I let it play for a little because that's such an important passage. But now, somehow the violin that played that melody earlier has brought the singer along with them with this text. And the singer sings the same melody. That rising melody, kind of like the resurrection theme from our previous symphony. 
So then we end with a little more of the night-esque music, but the idea is that we've turned a corner in this symphony. We've, man we've confronted what mankind tells me. And I mentioned at the beginning of the first part of a review of this symphony that this movement, the fourth movement, and the sixth movement are the two that are labeled what blank tells me as opposed to tell me. These were the two real personal movements for Mahler, the ones where he felt like he really infused his own kind of subjective, personal ideas <clears throat> into this program. So then, fittingly, we've turned a corner and we get to the movement, What the Angels Tell Me. This is... Mahler was very interested in the idea of what people call musica celestis, or the music of the heavens, and this is in some ways clearly meant to depict that he uses the glockenspiel, a lot of very high instruments, to portray this idea. Let's listen. And in addition to that, I, of course, I almost failed to mention there is a boys' choir that sings in this movement that certainly gives that high-pitched quality and a women's choir. So you get a lot of high voices, glockenspiel, flute, to depict the music of angels, which is the first stop on this enlightened state of the ladder. So the text of this movement is from Des Knaben Wunderhorn, the Wunderhorn, I should say, uh, the uh, set of poems that Mahler really liked and set to a lot of different songs that he wrote and also to a lot of different music that infused a lot of these early symphonies. Um, the text, I'm not going to get into too much on this movement. Most of it is just Three Angels Sang a Sweet Song. It's it's about angels singing. We heard the word Petrus, which is Peter, who's alluded to a few times in this piece. And whenever there's an allusion to a religious figure in this uh, movement, he interestingly gives this kind of quick chorale texture. So this, this movement has a little bit of a religious-seeming undertone to it as well. I want to play for you now one passage that won't make a lot of sense right now and I won't talk about it, but we'll just highlight it now and come back to it tomorrow when we break down the fourth symphony, a little spoiler alert. But let me play that passage for you now just so you have it in your ears whenever you choose to move on to the fourth symphony. So I'll play for you, just in the interest of uh, doing my due diligence on this movement, I'll play for you the climax of this movement, which is uh, this one painful passage. The text is, um, And should I not weep, kind God? I have violated the Ten Commandments. I wander and weep bitterly. Oh, come and take pity on me. This is the one verse that, that has a uh, kind of please have mercy on me bent and is not entirely optimistic. So let's listen to this. Climax, which is one of my favorite moments in this particular movement. To very cool effect, you often hear in, in this movement, like it starts, the boys' choir sings bim, bum. They actually just sing the sound of a bell, which is an excellent effect. And so then this, this music comes back, the angelic music. This, this movement is in kind of an ABA form with that one painful verse in the, in the middle. And it ends, we hear some more of those uh, 
kind of religious sounding moments where it for a second feels like it jolts into more of a chorale before coming back to this musica celestis type of atmosphere and it ends with some very very high notes and then we finally come to the massive culmination of the symphony of this ladder what love tells me and so sappy Mahler we get to the end and what really it's all about in life according to him is 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 love which he equates essentially with with God Mahler said about this movement this is when the Ixion wheel stops spinning the wheel of Ixion is this ancient Greek myth and it's used by Schopenhauer to describe the never-ending will to satisfy our desires so somehow there's almost a little bit of asceticism or kind of um, Zen philosophy in here as well that we've somehow made it to the top and we no longer have this will to satisfy our desires. It's it's a lot of convoluted uh, German romantic philosophy in this in this whole cosmological worldview here, but we can try to make some sense of it. But in any case, what we get is this massive, massive Mahler adagio. Mahler often said that the the Colossal Adagio was the greatest of symphonic forms, and he wrote several, this maybe being the biggest. Uh-uh, maybe not, but um, this is a massive Adagio movement, meaning very slow. And so I'll play for you a few passages from this movement. It really, though, there's not so much music in this movement for me to break down. It's something that you just have to listen to and experience at the almost tectonically slow but magical pace that it unfolds. It's not, we're, we're not in a hurry to finish any of this music. There's really three themes that we hear, and I'll play for you those themes. And then, of course, with love comes some pain. We'll also hear some, some pain in there as well. But here's the opening theme of this last movement. And importantly... This theme is in D major. The key of this last movement is in D major, which I mentioned before was the key that we were in for those uplifting moments when we somehow turned the corner, unlocked the key that would take us the rest of the way up this ladder of enlightenment in the fourth movement. And so now we've arrived fully in D major, the key of love for Mahler. So there are two other important themes along with that one, the... That's the first theme, and I want to play for you just due diligence so you're familiar with all of the themes of this movement. The other two, there's this chorale-like theme that we hear that sounds like this.
And then here's the more pleading, throbbing second theme that shows you the other, the maybe slightly less warm and fuzzy side of love, a little bit more of, of the passion which we get in this, this second main theme. So then we get the first of a few what will be kind of pain-filled sections in this movement, and the first one just seems to be a kind of standard depiction of a little bit of pain, but then these painful sections take on greater importance as we get further on. But here's the first one. We've heard those three themes, and then we hear this, this painful, passionate section of music. So Mahler was often a fan of something called cyclic form or um, rotational form, some people call it, where he would cycle through the same order of things multiple times, and that's what he does in this movement several times. So we hear all of those themes presented again almost in exact order, and we come to the next climax after hearing much more of this love music. But now, interestingly, this is a new climax, and... I'm going to play it for you and try to listen closely to the melody that's being played during this this climax. So at the climax, we hear the horn section play. That, that melody. And I want to play for you a, a portion of the fourth movement that I didn't play earlier, but that is very important for this moment. Let's listen to a little more back of the, the fourth movement, that What Mankind Tells Me movement. So the singer is actually singing there, you hear those notes, the same notes. The text is tief ist irve, deep is its pain. The text before that, the world is deep, and deeper than the day has thought, deep is its pain. So he's referring back to the fourth movement here to talk about some of the pain of the world that we have overcome through this this love, but we're, we're still reminded of it here at this, this painful moment. So then we get another cycle, um, and again we get a climax, and this time 
we have a breakthrough moment, one of our favorite breakthrough moments, and I'm going to play this one for you, see if you can, if you've been paying attention and can recognize this guy as well. So here we hear the breakthrough that we heard way back in the first movement twice. And there we knew it was going to have some importance later. And in fact, this is the last painful climax that we get to in this love movement. So somehow we get transported at the key moment back to where we all started. We also got a hint of it in the third movement in a similar breakthrough style moment. But it, it kind of connects the whole symphony together here at this key formal moment, the idea that, you know, we have to remember, I guess, where we, where we started from in order to get here. And from this breakthrough moment, we, we get a transformation, which will lead us to the final iteration of this love theme that grows, swells, and, and ultimately ends in the culmination of this whole symphony. I want to listen to that transformation passage after this breakthrough where it, everything dissolves and we get this lone flute and piccolo playing. And again, listen carefully to what, what they play here. So the first part of that flute melody is taken from part of the love theme. But then we hear... And this part right here, just to me, I, nobody has validated this for me, not that there's any right answers anyways, but... This rising figure, to me, sounds very much like... figure that we heard at that exact moment of transformation in the fourth movement from darkness to light and that's ultimately what unlocks the final D major statement of this love theme which grows and grows into an incredible apotheosis closing to the symphony a different style of closing from the really uh, rambunctious and triumphant first symphony or the kind of uh, incredibly uplifting closing of the the second symphony again very triumphant this is a little bit different it's also uplifting but it feels much more profound and it just swells into a massive amount of D major sound I'm not going to play it for you because it's actually it's a long stretch it's it's five minutes at the end of of growth and and of exciting D major music and so I encourage you to listen to that in addition to of course the whole the whole movement the whole symphony so with that whew, big one made it to the end of the third symphony we have what we have mentioned could be considered essentially the seventh movement of the third symphony uh the fourth symphony that we'll be reviewing tomorrow or actually i should say now today because uh, we've we've bled into wednesday here recording this but an hour and 45 minutes one corona light later we've we've made it to the 
end of this fantastic symphony. As always, thanks for, for staying with us, and we'll see you tomorrow for the fantastic Fourth Symphony.